All right. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. Book of 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1297. 1 Peter chapter 5. I was, uh, I was reading an article in a, in a newspaper this week, and, and I came across a phrase that I've been thinking about ever since. Um, and the phrase was toxic positivity. Toxic positivity. It's a phrase that psychologists use to describe when people overvalue positive emotions and undervalue negative ones. Now, you might ask, What's so bad about being optimistic, right? We're trained to think, you know, find the silver lining, look at the positive side, that sort of thing, glass half full, all those kind of things. And of course, there's nothing wrong with trying to be positive. Um, it certainly is not healthy if our thoughts and emotions are only ever negative. But the point they were making is that it's about balance because we, we live in a world where good things happen and where bad things happen and failing to acknowledge genuinely distressing circumstances does not make them go away. In fact, it's a sign that we're not living in reality. And when we do that, something happens in our brain where we know subconsciously that this is bad, but when we say it's fine, it just it messes, our, it messes with our head. And uh, when I heard that phrase, toxic positivity, I, I thought, okay, this is giving me some vocabulary for something that I have seen my whole life. Um, I don't know if it's particularly Bible Belt, but that's where I grew up. And uh, we just are inclined to say everything's fine, right? We, we're not comfortable with talking about negative emotions. And there are lots of reasons for that. But one reason, I think, uh, and this kind of puts sort of a, a quasi-sanctified veneer over it, is because of the way many of us uh, think about uh, the blessings and trials that we face in life. So most people in the Bible Belt naturally think roughly in this way. The good things that happen to me are blessings from God's hand, and the bad things that happen to me are, are trials from Satan, which he is using to try to steal or, or otherwise to corrupt the good things that God has done. So good things from God, bad things from Satan. Now, if that's our mindset, what, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to try to focus on the blessings, right? Focus on the positive things, and we're going to try to sort of ignore the bad things, the hard things, or, or at least we're going to feel guilty that we, we can't to ignore those hardships. And so the question that I want us to ask is, what if that way of thinking is incorrect? What if in a mysterious way, both the blessings and the trials ultimately come from the loving hand of God. If that's the case, then it is utter foolishness to ignore the trials because they are part of His loving care for us. Because if we ignore the trials and we downplay them and say they're not that bad, what we're doing is we're ignoring something that our good Father has sent our way for our ultimate good. And so that's something that I want us to, to wrestle with this morning here in 1 Peter 5. We're going to pick up in the second.
Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And we're going to pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken uh, of your character and of what your character implies for us and our lives. And so we pray that you would help us today to be reminded of your power and of your care. And that, Lord, yes, while we have an enemy, we have an enemy who is himself subject to your power and to your care. And, Lord, that you would help us to see that, to be reminded of that. And, Lord, that we would, by grace, believe it and live according to it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, so I said a moment ago that many of us have been conditioned to think Good things come from God, bad things come from Satan. And at first glance, when you first read through this passage, you might think, well, this seems to confirm that point because in verse 7, Peter says, God cares for you. And then in verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So God is a Loving Father who cares for us. Satan is a roaring lion who hates us and is looking to devour us. But this is why context is so important. Because what Peter says about Satan in 1 Peter 5, 8, he does not say that in a vacuum. It's not like Peter has just kind of crocheted that on a pillow all by itself. And not like that stands on its own. What he says about Satan he says in the context of a lot of things he's already told us about God. So look back with me. You might be just a page back at chapter 4, verse 12. And notice what Peter says there. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So when Peter says that the fiery trial is intended to test you, he's telling us, that the trial is from God's hand. God has allowed unearned suffering in the lives of His children to refine their holiness. Then he adds in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to at the household of God. That is not something that Satan does. That is something that God does. God is the one who judges His own. And then verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what does all that mean? It means that by the time we get to verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, and we hear that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, we've already been primed to hear that truth in the context of what we already know to be true about God. It's not that all good things come from God's hand and all bad things come from Satan. The trials that we experience may very well be the, the sinful, hateful roaring of Satan. 
But behind that roar, behind that hateful scheme is God's good purpose. Satan, what he wants to do is always subordinate to God's good purpose and what he wants to accomplish. And that's not just this kind of theological statement that we, okay, now we know that. It's this great thing to ponder. No, that really has real bearing on our lives because if God's good purpose is ultimately behind Satan's evil purpose, does that not impact the way that we relate to the trials that we face? It means that when we experience trials, we can't just ignore them and say, no, no, this is just Satan. He's just trying to mess with me. He's trying to, to steal what God has done. So I, I'm just going to ignore him. No, if God's purpose is behind it, then it means that it's foolish for me to ignore the trial. It's foolish to pretend that it doesn't exist or that it's not that bad. I can, I can certainly say I'm not going to let Satan accomplish what he wants to accomplish in this. But I also need to be asking the question, well, wait a minute. What is God trying to this trial. That Satan's purpose is, is to devour and to intimidate, but what is God's purpose in allowing this? What is He wanting to do in my life by allowing this? So I have to be alert simultaneously to those two things. What is Satan's purpose? What is he trying to tempt me to do? What is he trying to intimidate me into doing or not doing? But I also have to be alert to God's good purpose. What is His objective in allowing this to Happen. So here's how I want to summarize this big idea. Directed toward Satan. Now it's obvious that Satan opposes God's people. That's the point of calling him your adversary. He is opposed to God's people. But Peter also wants us to see what God opposes. That's why I wanted us to sort of back up and catch the last half of verse 5, where God says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So let's engage in some, some critical thinking here for a second. God does not oppose His children. Peter says in verse 7 that God cares for you. But He does oppose the proud, which means that God must work in the lives of His children to weed out pride, to, to pull it up from its roots. Now, how does God work in the lives of His children to, to weed out pride? Well, for one thing, He tells us, don't be prideful, right? That, I mean, any parent knows that the first thing you have to do is you have to tell them what to do or not do. And of course, that doesn't mean they're going to do it. And God knows that. So, so what else does God do? Well, He gives us His Spirit, right? That's one of the promises of, of the new covenant that you read about in Jeremiah 31, is God says, I'm going to put my Spirit within you and call to walk in my ways. I'm not just going to tell you what to do, but I'm actually going to empower you to do it because God knows that on our own and our own strength, we are not able to obey Him. So He tells us, don't be proud. He gives us His Spirit. And then, in addition to all that, among other things, one of the ways that God weeds out pride in our lives 
is by subjecting his children to unearned suffering, by allowing them to endure the fiery trial that refines our holiness. But because God cares for us, it's, it's not that God is uncaring. It's not that he says, okay, here's the problem and I'm going to fix it. The problem is that my, my children, my people, my sheep, they have pride in their heart. And so I'm going to send them through this trial and, and I'm going to do that callously just to weed that out of them because I'm fixing a problem. No, God is a father. He is a shepherd who loves his people. And so he knows that this is going to be painful. He knows that sending us through this fiery trial is going to be terrifying. So what does he tell us to do? Verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Verse 7, Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Now the phrase, mighty hand of God, I want us to think about that for a second. That's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament to describe the power that God used when he delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt. So think about in the book of Exodus, the plagues that God performed to, to get Pharaoh to, to let his people go. That's, that, that's what the phrase, the mighty hand of God, is meant to remind us of. It's a reminder of the works that God did to accomplish their redemption. And of course, there is no mightier work of God that he has done than when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Paul says in Romans 8, 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So the same God who delivered his people with a mighty hand, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, he lives in you, dwells in you, and he orders and permits every trial that you face. Nothing happens in your life without being filtered through his hand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And Peter gives us a specific example of what he means when he says to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The verb casting there is a participle, which means that it explains how we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We humble ourselves under His mighty hand by casting all of our anxieties on Him. Now, one of the things we need to be crystal clear about is that God anticipates that we will experience anxieties. And I love how the Bible, at times it is, it is beautifully precise, and at times it is beautifully vague. And this is one of those times where when God says, casting all your anxieties on Him, that word anxieties, all your anxieties, is really vague, right? He doesn't say anything about the nature of the anxieties, it doesn't say anything about the number, how many there are. It doesn't say anything about the severity of them. We, we're sort of inclined for whatever reason, I think, just, just selfishness and pride. We, we look at other people's anxieties and we think, that's nothing to be anxious about. I'm the one who has the anxieties, right? Uh, you know, a, a really silly example of this is, you know, some people look at someone who's afraid of a, of a roach or a spider and they say, that's silly, Right? Snakes are the things you should be afraid of, right? And other people, they could pick up a snake with their bare hands and it wouldn't bother them. But if they see a spider, they're running as fast as they can. Now, that's a silly example, but extrapolate that out, right? We're inclined to look around and sort of judge other people's anxieties. But God casts a wide net here. It's casting all your anxieties on Him, whatever they are. Bring them to Him. 
And so he expects, he anticipates that we're going to have anxiety. That's a natural expectation of living in a broken world. And being a Christian does not exempt you from this aspect of life. Peter is not writing this letter to unbelievers. It's not like he's speaking to unbelievers and saying, you have anxieties, but, but Christians, they don't have any. He's, he's speaking to believers. He's saying, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And anytime the Bible deals with anxiety, it does not simply tell us, stop being anxious. If you've ever dealt with any version of anxiety, you know that's not helpful advice. I wish I could stop being anxious. What makes anxieties sinful is when we hold on to them, when we sort of nurse them and we refuse to give them up and, and we refuse to cast them on the Lord. In fact, refusing to cast them onto Him is a sign of pride because if I'm humbling myself under the mighty hand of God, I will cast my anxieties on Him. Now, I want to be really clear. What, I want you to notice what I did not say. I did not say, if I'm humbling myself under the mighty hand of God, I won't have any anxieties. That's not what Peter says. He doesn't say, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, and if you do that, you won't have any anxieties. He says that if you are humbling yourself under His mighty hand, you're still going to have anxieties, but the way that you know you're humbling yourself is if you're casting them on Him. So this is not some kind of sanctified version of don't worry, be happy. The question is, what will we do with our worries? Will we, will we cling to them? Will we try to manage them on our own? Will we simply distract ourselves uh, in an attempt to forget about them temporarily? If you've ever dealt with anxiety, you know how tempting that can be to just say, I'm going to just sort of try to forget about them. Or will we cast them onto the Lord? And so a really important question is, what in the world does that mean? Practically, what does it mean to cast all our anxieties on Him? That's one of those phrases that I've heard people say, and they say it as if I'm supposed to know what that means, practically. How, how do I do that? I, I, my anxieties are not physical. I can't go and pick them up and say, here you go, Lord, there they are. They're all in here and in here. So how do I, how do, I do that? Is Peter simply saying, you know, instead of being anxious, just pray. Now, we certainly need to pray. And Paul says elsewhere, uh, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, make your supplications known to him. So Paul says, instead of being anxious, pray. So prayer is certainly a big part of it. When we pray, we, we ask God for help with, with dealing with and enduring whatever it is that is vexing our soul. But while prayer is, is crucial, there is more to it than that. Uh, anytime we're talking about any kind of sanctification, the, the, the answer is never just blank. It's never just pray, just read this passage of Scripture, just preach the gospel to yourself, just go to church more, just whatever. It's, it's always way more complicated than that. So casting our anxieties on the Lord means that we, we trust Him, that we rest in, in who He is and what He's doing in us and for us, and the way we express that trust is certainly through praying, but it also means that we strive to obey Him, that we strive to be faithful to whatever responsibilities He has given to us. So in other words, we, we don't just become so fixated on our anxieties that, that we allow them to choke out everything else 
but that we keep fulfilling the responsibilities he's given us. Uh, we do what we can, and we are honest about the things outside of our control, and we simply do the next right thing. And Peter gives us two motivations for casting our anxieties on the Lord. Look again at verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that's one characteristic about God that he wants us to know about. So at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So two characteristics about God that motivate us casting our anxieties on him. He's mighty. He's powerful, strong. There is nothing so big that he would say, wow, that's, man, that's too big. I can't handle that. Sorry. Maybe try someone else. No, he is, he's mighty. And he cares for you. So there's nothing too small that he would say, wow, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm dealing with bigger things here. You know, I've got planets to turn. Uh, I've got, you know, this, this hurricane to get fired up over the whatever. I've got, uh, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are, you know, wildfires over here. And, you know, I've also got people in Africa that they, they're asking me to do things. And so I, I just, I'm sorry, but I, my, my, I've got too many plates spinning. I've, I can't possibly deal with that, that little minor thing that's, that's going on in your life. No, he cares for you. Both of those things together is, is great news. God doesn't promise to make your life easy, but he has pledged to, to make all things work together for your ultimate good. To make, your, to make you more like His Son, Jesus. And so that's why I say we, we have to rest in God's powerful care. We, he's powerful, He's mighty, and He cares for us. We have to rest in that truth. And then the second half uh, of the big idea is that we must resist Satan's hateful schemes. Hateful schemes. So God cares for His children he always has a, a good purpose in whatever he allows to happen to them. But then Peter reminds us in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So God intends to refine our holiness. He cares for us. Satan wants to destroy and to devour. The point is that those two statements are not equal to one another. What I mean is, it's not like those are equally important. Satan, his purpose is subordinate to God's purpose. His hateful schemes are subordinate to God's powerful care. Satan is not the Lord's equal. It's not like sometimes God wins and other times Satan wins. It's not like God says every once in a while, man, Satan, you got me today, you know? Satan... Peter tells us is a roaring lion, but he's a lion on a leash. He can only do what God permits him to do. God alone is almighty, and Satan's power is limited by God's power. That is, I think, why Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. Think about that phrase. What is, what is a roar meant to do? I'm not a feline psychologist, and I did not stay in a Holiday Inn Express last night. But... In my very simplistic understanding, what I think a roar is meant to do is, is to intimidate, to say, hey, watch out, I'm the big guy here, and I'm coming for you. 
right? And so one of Satan's primary tools against God's children is intimidation. He wants to, to threaten us into conforming to the world. He wants us to see how difficult the road of obedience is going to be, and he wants us to see that and say, mm, no, that's too much. I think I'll just take this easier, wider path over here. And so that's why Peter tells us in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. I mean, listen, I can imagine uh, if you were out in the middle of the bush in Africa and you were walking along the road and there's tall grass and then all of a sudden you hear a lion's roar, <laughs> that would be really scary. But it wouldn't be that scary if you were inside a tank, right? I don't, know. I don't care. I'm fine in here. Come at me, man. Right? That's the point. You are secure in God's powerful care. So don't allow yourself to be intimidated by His roar. Satan has his hateful schemes, and the way we resist them, the way we withstand his intimidation, is by resting in God's powerful care. Which means that when I say we rest in God's powerful care, that resting is not passive. We, we, we rest in God's powerful care by resisting his hateful schemes, and we resist Satan's hateful schemes by resting in God's powerful care. We, we continue to affirm that God is sovereign and merciful. Uh, we, we trust in Him and we remain firm in our commitment to do good. Peter said back in chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. That's what it means to be firm in our faith. It means we keep doing what God says. We keep praising Him. We keep trusting Him. We keep listening to His Word. We keep praying. We keep striving to obey Him, even if uh, that obedience makes our lives a little more difficult in the short term. And notice this, we resist Satan, firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I find that so fascinating, right? That one of the ways that we resist Satan, one of the ways we remain firm in our faith is by knowing that what's happening to me, it's not all that unusual or extraordinary. That's one of... That's one of the ways that Satan tries to deceive us is by making us think that whatever I'm going through right now, nobody else has ever dealt with this before. Uh, nobody else has ever had it as bad as I have it right now. And so one weapon that we have against him, surprisingly, is, is love. It's empathy. Love is not just a way that we help others. It's also a way that we resist Satan's hateful schemes. Because what happens is we remind ourselves that I'm not on my own. I'm part of a, of a family. And this family exists not just here, but ex exists throughout the world, history. And what, what God is allowing me and permitting me to walk through right now, I'm not the first one of His children that He's made to walk through this particular trial. And so what we do is we practice a little bit of self-forgetfulness where we sort of get beyond ourselves and we look around uh, to others, we care about what they're going through, and we say, man, you know, I have some perspective now because I see that what, what I'm going through, it's not all that extraordinary or unusual. This is the norm. So we focus then on, on how can I love them? How can I help them? And then before we know it, God's good purpose is on display in our lives because suffering has now become an opportunity for me to grow in my faith toward God and to grow in my love to others.
that now because I've gone through this trial, it has caused me by God's grace to lift up my eyes beyond myself and to look at, at others and to say, wow, I, I need to think about what they're going through. Even though I may be going through this, I need to check on them. I need to ask them how they're doing. I need to see how I can pray for them, how I can help them. And so that's really the bottom line, that every trial is an opportunity. Every hardship we face is an opportunity for us to, to, to rest in our Father's powerful care and to resist our adversary's hateful schemes. So, so the question is, who are we going to listen to? When, when hardship comes, am I going to allow myself to be intimidated by the roar of Satan or... Am I going to allow myself to be encouraged by the roar of the Lion of Judah? Wh whose voice am I going to listen to? Am I going to listen to the one who is truth, or am I going to listen to the one who is the father of all lies? Am I going to listen to the one who cares for me and who is mighty, am I, or am I going to listen to the one who is my adversary and who would accuse me in the courtroom of God's justice? In the book of Job, uh, when God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job except his own life. How did Job respond? Well, he mourned, right? He, he didn't put on a, a happy face and pretend this is fine, this is perfectly okay. No, he, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground, all ways of indicating his, his culture that he's sad. But in addition to that, what else does he do? He worshiped. He reminded himself about the truth. Satan would, would have Job think that God had forsaken him. That's what Satan wanted, right? Satan, Satan wanted Job to think, wow, you know, here you have been a righteous person. You've tried to, to turn away from evil, and yet look at what God allowed. Look, look, look at where that got you. And instead, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knew that behind Satan's hateful purpose was God's good purpose. He knew that ultimately at the end of the day, Satan was not the one who had taken everything from him. It was the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And that led him to bless the name of the Lord. Now, I don't want to oversimplify matters. Again, it's never just blank, but I also don't want us to overcomplicate them. We keep coming back to this truth that the weapons with which we engage in this war appear to be very ordinary, but they are the instruments that God uses uh, to exert His power in our lives. They are the means that the Spirit of God uses to sustain us and to shield us from the enemy's attack. So I want to give us just three practical takeaways for how we can rest in God's powerful care and resist Satan's hateful schemes. The first way is by listening to the Lord's voice. Satan is an accuser. He is one who roars and tries to intimidate. And so the way we resist yeah. him is by choosing to listen to the Lord's voice rather than his. And we hear the Lord's voice not by going off on a mountain somewhere, uh, not by sitting with our legs crossed and holding our fingers like this. We hear God's voice when we read His Word, when we read the Bible. 
This is where God speaks. This is the, the only book that God has said. This is God breathed. This is my word. And so we, we, you can do that by, by reading the Bible. Just as importantly, we do that by, by being faithful to, to hear His word in the assembly of His people. That's why, as we saw last Sunday, that's one reason why God has entrusted uh, His flock to human shepherds so that we can, we can feed His sheep. But to adapt an old saying, we can, we can lead the sheep to Scripture, but we can't make them eat, right? So we have to be faithful to listen to the Lord's voice. That's one way we can rest in God's powerful care and resist Satan's hateful schemes by filling our minds and our ears with the voice of the Good Shepherd. And the second uh, way we can do that is, is by singing of the Lord's goodness by singing of the Lord's goodness. Now, I, I very easily could have said praying there, but I, I wanted to single out singing here because we're told in, in Scripture to, to rejoice in the Lord, which is not to say be happy. The word rejoice doesn't mean be happy. It means to boast. And, and sometimes um, we have to declare what we know to be true, and then we wait for our feelings to catch up with our declaration. And so there is something particularly powerful about not just saying truth, but about singing truth. When we, when we sing songs that are filled with biblical truth, we declare that truth to ourselves. We declare that truth to one another, and we declare that truth to Satan. It's one of the ways that, that we, in the words of Colossians 3.16, that we let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Satan hates to hear the Lord's people sing of His goodness and boast in Him. And so that's one of the ways that we can resist His hateful schemes is by singing of the Lord's goodness. And then the third way we do that, is by being with the Lord's people, by being with the Lord's people. And we know, based on recent experience, that sometimes we have to do that in creative ways. Uh, we're not always able to physically be together, but uh, we can still, still be together in spirit one way or another. Uh, I love Philippians 4, uh, 11, where, where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A lot of people are familiar with that uh, verse, but not as many people know the, second, the, the verse after that, Philippians 4.12. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So when Paul said, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, he did not mean, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me all by myself. I don't need anybody else. That's not what he meant. One of the ways that the Lord strengthened him was by having brothers and sisters in Christ who shared his trouble with him. And so God sustains us by giving us brothers and sisters in Christ who can share our troubles. We're not meant to bear them alone. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So listen to the Lord's voice, sing of the Lord's goodness, be with the Lord's people. That's how we rest in God's powerful care and we resist Satan's hateful schemes. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word. And uh, for those of us here in the room today, we're going to sing the song Before the Throne of God Above. And uh, if you're 
If you're listening on Facebook or YouTube or something like that, uh, we're going to cut you off before we start singing for copyright reasons. But, uh, but I encourage you, wherever you are, if you're here or somewhere else, to, to think about the words of this song. You may look them up um, and read them. Uh, but this is an opportunity for us to sing of the Lord's goodness and let Satan hear us sing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So let's, I pray that we'll sing that truth with some gumption this morning uh, and, and tell uh, the powers of hell that they can know where to run because we serve one who is greater, we serve one who is stronger, we serve one who has won, and their time is short. And so he can roar all he wants, but we serve the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We serve the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He will be victorious. He will make all things new. And so let's praise his name together. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your powerful care for us, Lord, that you are mighty and strong. Lord, that you have all power in heaven and on earth. You have all authority. And yet, Lord, you look on us with care and love. Uh, and Lord, there is nothing in our lives too small that you don't care for it. And so, Lord, what a good father you are. What a loving shepherd you are for us. And I pray this morning that you would help us, wherever we are, to, to rest in that powerful care that you have for us. Lord, I pray for those who are hearing my voice right now that we would refuse to listen to the lies of our adversary and that we would instead listen to the truth that you have spoken to us. And God, when we experience trials and when we're tempted to despair, that we would look to Jesus, the one who has made an end of all our sin, the one with whom we are seated in the heavenly places. And Lord, that you would Help us to be reminded of that. Lord, I pray as we, as we come to this time and we respond to your word, Lord, that you would help us not to harden our hearts before you, but that we would respond in trust and in repentance, Lord, that we would come before you in humility and humble ourselves in your mighty hand because you care for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.